This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each year at General Assembly, we host an assembly-wide seminar with a panel discussing a topic of timely importance. Sometimes these panels are members of a study committee sharing the fruit of their work. Other times, leaders with a variety of opinions gather to share a specific focus. Here is the panel on racial and ethnic reconciliation from June 2018 at the PCA General Assembly in Atlanta, Georgia. Brothers and fathers, mothers and sisters, it is a privilege for us to be here. We have been serving for two years and the fellowship of the ring has been amazing. It has been a privilege to serve our savior, first of all, to honor our great king, the one who has loved us and with an everlasting love and washed us from our sins with his own blood. And then to serve our church, to serve the PCA, we have been privileged to do this together and to do it as we have had been mandated by the General Assembly of, I think, 2016. We're going to briefly give some highlights of the report this morning, but I'm, my job is to start off with kind of a few housekeeping issues real quick, and then we'll move into uh, various parts of the report. And then there, there's a, a phone number. You can text questions uh, to the committee. Um, and we'll get to those questions uh, as soon as we finish a bit of an overview. First of all, yes, we did assume racism. Um, that was the report. That was our confession. That was what we began with. The, we wouldn't be here if our denomination had not gone on record as confessing. And so, yes, we did assume racism within various aspects of our church, um, we believe in total depravity, um, and since I believe in total de- depravity, and every member on this committee believes in total depravity, we recognize that all of us have the seeds of racism in our hearts, preferential treatment, um, partiality, as I believe the, the, God, the book of James calls it. We're all guilty of that in some way. So yes, we did assume these things, otherwise there would not have been a need for even this committee. We had ruling elders on our committee who were actively engaged in every aspect of our deliberations. They were in all of our meetings. They were a part of all that was done. Full um, uh, ability to contribute. And so we're grateful for the fact that this committee was not just made up of teaching elders, but ruling elders, three of them in particular, who gave clear, Gracious support. Now, some have asked why this committee, why the makeup of this committee, and George Robinson, our our moderator who put together this committee, 
It, I can't speak for George. I can only surmise uh, why that great man of God chose all of us. I don't know why he chose me at all, but anyway. Um, I, I, I think it would be safe to say we were pretty like-minded. Some nuances here and there, but yes, we were a pretty like-minded committee. Is that a problem? Of course not. We had confessed. As a denomination, we had confessed that we had issues and we wanted help. And so George Robinson asked practitioners, not men who denied that we had a problem, but practitioners who had been involved in racial reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ for years. He put together this team, I suppose, because of that, so that we could come back with, to you with the guidelines and suggestions that you required. Otherwise, we would have been debating and fighting among ourselves, and we would not be sitting here today. So no, so you know, I don't think that the committee was made up of like-minded men at all. It was a hindrance. It was a blessing, and that's why we're here today. It is troublesome, and I'll be honest, I'm speaking for myself now. It is troublesome that some who have disagreed with our work never spoke to any member of the committee. That's troublesome. That's, that's millennial. Forgive me if any millennials are here. We rather talk on social media than to talk to each other, a phone call, an email, directly to any member of this committee, and we could have helped with some of the Brothers, I, family, I have to tell you, something's on the internet that has been said about our committee and what we're going to talk about are crazy. Literally, I'm trying to be generous here. But I'm disappointed in that. It was just sad to see the, the fear-mongering that was happening on the blogosphere. And as you read our report, none of those things that were reparations, none of those things are in our report because they were never on our mind. Please, that was destructive. And we um, caused some consternation in my heart, that's for sure. But brothers and sisters, please talk to one another. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. We're supposed to mind our tongues, be careful with our words, including our keyboards, but we need to talk to each other and ask questions of one another. Lastly, in my introduction, loving your neighbor as yourself is not a slippery slope. You can say amen if you want. It is not a slippery slope for the church or for a Christian. Loving your neighbor as yourself, which John says must be not with words only, but in deed and in action, loving your neighbor, caring for your neighbor, caring for justice for your neighbor, caring for, her, caring for your neighbor's flourishing and well-being as the image of God is never, never a slippery slope, brothers and sisters. Not loving your neighbor in the name of biblical orthodoxy is the slippery slope. That's the slippery slope. That's dangerous, deadly. Denying the inspiration, inerrancy, and relevance of the scriptures. 
That is the slippery slope. None of these men fall into that category on this committee. And I don't believe, I want to believe none of you fall into that category as well. Introduction over. Dr. Carl Ellis, sir. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Uh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, <clears throat> I want to add uh, to uh, Kevin's introductory remarks by, remarks by just reiterating the fact that not one of us on the committee has any interest in, in introducing liberalism to the PCA. That's just, we know the destructive, corrosive force that has been over the years. And we have welcomed the advice of anyone who has concerns about the potential drift of the PCA. We are not interested in doing anything that would be uh, anywhere in that, in that area. Um, a lot, I've encountered a lot of people who have uh, associated us with issues that are not related to our stated uh, assignment and who have imposed upon us narratives and, and, uh, uh, that contradict our intentions and our goals. So with that in mind, I just want to say that all we wanted to do basically was to address the cultural sin that has tainted the life of the PCA. And all of us being sinners, we're affected by cultural sin. And the other thing is to build a healthier denomination reflective of the unity that Christ has claimed for us. So with that in mind, uh, I just want to just uh, highlight a couple of things in our affirmations and denials. We, we thought this was important to, to make sure that there is nothing, there's no hidden agendas. You can probably see in your reports, we affirm the, that God, the, the Bible is God-breathed. Uh, we affirm the, the uh, vision in Revelation 7, 9 through 11. Uh, but just let me get a, go through a couple of denials here, uh, just to reiterate, because you see those affirmations pretty much. Uh, we affirm the Westminster standards. Uh, we, again, we reject theological liberalism. And Machen did a good job in defining what the issues were. We reject Marxism and socialism and all ideologies based on one or the other or both. We reject theological formulations incorporating, uh, incorporating racism or, or racial superiority as aberrant and unbiblical and anti-biblical, like kinism. We reject intersectionality not solely based on biblical norms. And those of you who don't know what intersectionality is, you can look it up on the internet, but <clears throat> there is a biblical intersectionality, and you find that in Revelation chapter, se chapter uh, 7, verse 9, that every race, kindred, tribe, tongue are all one in Christ. That's intersectionality. Now, intersectionality of the day is, is based on how many points of oppression you can claim. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's a whole other thing. We reject that. We reject human identities that demand precedence over our identity in Christ. We reject human identities based on unbiblical lifestyles. And we reject the notion that God's people are designated by anything other than God's sovereign election. I think about some 
theolo theological formulations, so-called, so uh, that say that, for example, uh, all oppressed people are God's people automatically. And of course, that sets up a dilemma. What happens when you liberate them? Are they no longer God's people? <laughs> it's based on God's sovereign election. And we reject as inadequate any analysis of racism that does not recognize sin and the fall as its root. There are analyses of racism that, while have uh, by common grace said some uh, useful things, but their analysis is too shallow. It does not go down to the root. We as the Christian community have an understanding of all of these things all the way down to the root. And it is really imperative, I think, that as a part of our witness to Jesus Christ, we need to show that the Bible does address the problem at its very core. So uh, I, I pray that we have been encouraged by the, the, uh, uh, also by the, the feedback that we've gotten from many of you uh, in, uh, in support uh, of this report. And uh, I, I think we're kind of proud of it. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a, we're we're, and I personally am encouraged. I've been around the PCA for 35 years, and I'm very encouraged by, by what I see God doing uh, among us. Kevin, Dr. Sean Lucas. So we really believed that um, rather than simply giving raw data, um, and some suggestions, that it was important to frame uh, the data so that. Uh, we could interpret it and you could interpret it within our biblical theological and confessional frameworks. And so that's why we really believe that the biblical theological, confessional, and pastoral and missional sections were significant. In the biblical and theological section, uh, as you probably saw, we moved on a, on a trajectory of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, the biblical storyline, uh, and tried to unpack uh, from the Bible uh, why racial diversity and unity is so significant, both by way of creation how that has been harmed by the fall, but what Christ through uh, his death on the cross is doing in tearing down the dividing wall of hostility and making one new humanity in and through the church. Uh, we really believe that section was vital to the, the overall report. Then we moved into a section of confessional reflection, noting that uh, race is nowhere mentioned in our standards, and yet um, confessional theological confessional frameworks for uh, racial reconciliation justice certainly were present uh, in our standards. Uh, and so um, actually once that, as we were working on that section, it was striking actually how much data really does uh, consist in our standards for, for drawing out some of these themes, particularly in the exposition of, of God's law uh, and in the uh, Ten Commandments. Um, and in, in talking about racial reconciliation and justice and dealing with the second table of the law, um, we, we wanted to try to tease out the, how the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments relate to reconciliation and justice. And so you would note that um, each uh, commandment uh, was drawn upon to speak to racial reconciliation and justice, including the eighth commandment, uh, which drew some comment um, in the social media world. From there, we went to pastoral and missional considerations in order to provide um, some, some thought on how racial reconciliation and justice issues might relate to pastoral care 
um, why these were pastorally significant issues, as well as how, uh, why they, they had helped us to advance the mission of God and his world. God is at work uh, forming one new humanity from every tribe, language, and people. Uh, and so, so why is this significant? Why is the study significant? Why is this data significant? Why do we have to wrestle with it? Well, it's because of these pastoral and missional considerations uh, that the committee brought forth. Um, so after Dr. Jun uh, reviews the, uh, the data, we also came back with some suggestions. And I might, if it's all right with our chairman, come back and pick those up after Dr. Jun. Part of the challenge for us is we have no data when we talk about race and racism uh, in our denomination. And so it was important to have some sort of baseline data. We need a landscape of how people think uh, and what they think about some of these issues that we've been talking about. So uh, please keep in mind that this is only one data point that we've done this. And so it's important to highlight that uh, with this one data point, we have the opportunity to do a diagnostic to see where we are. So this is why we asked, uh, we got bids from different uh, consulting organizations and we landed with Lifeway. We thought it was also important to have objectivity in our approach, uh, to ask an outside agency. A lot of our time was spent initially talking with this group that had to figure out who we were and what, uh, what the definitions and of uh, racism and other uh, forms of things that we were asking for. It was really good, it was a good reminder um, and I wanted you to know this, that the outside agent that we used was very unfamiliar with what we were doing. Uh, that was a good thing, right? So um, it wasn't, the deck wasn't stacked against anyone taking the survey. For example, for example, we did not define racism. Even if we had on the survey, we would all disagree with what racism is. So we did not define it because we wanted you, the, those who took the survey, to have a sense of what you thought racism was. Now, a, a simple answer would be, is it individual or is it systemic? Again, even if we were to define it, we may disagree. And this is a diagnostic. This is one point for us. So I wanted to highlight a few things here that I thought were interesting. We had a good survey result, uh, 2,600 people, uh, total responses, 1,400 or so teaching elders, uh, 1,100 ruling elders. Geographically, we had a little bit of a, um, it was an interesting finding. Uh, in the Southeast region, we had a greater response rate than we did outside. It could be consistent with where the denomination is. And we had um, some distinctions, I think, among ruling elders and teaching elders in terms of what we view as what is racism? Is there racism in the denomination? And what does racism look like in our denomination? But two very important points that I wanted to, to highlight. One, we do recognize, and the survey results show this, that we've seen racism in our denomination. The second point is, and this is important, it's unintentional. A vast majority of people say it is unintentional, so it's not a malicious form of racism. I was really encouraged by that, brothers and sisters. That was really, really encouraging because it gave me hope. It means perhaps it exists individually and or systemically, but we don't know how to do anything about it. So the good news is, this is a diagnostic for us. We can move forward to say, how can we provide education um, in our churches and our presbyteries and at the denomination-wide level? Um, so we're looking forward to that. This won't be the work of this committee, but um, because hopefully we'll be uh, dismissed with thanks. But, um, <laughs> 
we need to keep this on the forefront of our minds. What would education look like? So Lord willing, if we were to do a survey again in say five years, we'd have two data points. Did we do better? Did we do worse? Or did we stay the same? One interesting point is if we say there is no racism, there's a small percentage of people who said there is still no racism in the denomination. Um, I wonder just how Calvinist we are. How big is the T in total depravity for us? Mm. Um, I'm hoping, perhaps, and this is a, a sort of a twisted way for me to think about it, that if we recognize that there was racism in five years, right, that's actually a good thing. It means we're a little bit more self-reflective, perhaps. So data are interesting, the way that you can interpret them, and I know that we can have discussions back and forth about it, but uh, this is our best effort working with an outside agency uh, to come up with what we found here. You could read the report, of course, for yourself, and uh, we can discuss more about the specific findings. The committee then moved to talk about specific suggestions, which was part of the mandate from the assembly. Uh, and we broke those suggestions up into general suggestions, kind of a general overarching uh, kind of suggestion for, for folks, and then some specific suggestions based on for local congregations, presbyteries, academic institutions, agencies, and committees. Um, uh, if you've read the report, you know that the general suggestion was a return back to issues of corporate confession and repentance. Um, and uh, we tried briefly, uh, because much of that work and discussion has been had now over uh, several years, uh, to remind us as a denomination uh, that while much of our sin may be individual and personal, uh, our sin and sinning is also structural and generational. Uh, that's, that's the clear witness of the Bible. Uh, that is not something that we can really disagree with. We, as you exegete Ezekiel 18 and other pieces, you have to fit and compare scripture with scripture and fit Ezekiel 18 in relationship to uh, the, the numerous texts throughout scripture that speak of our corporate and generational uh, sin and sinning. Uh, and so we once again uh, urged uh, the congregations, presbyteries, uh, to, to consider um, their past. Um, notably, some of our historic congregations have done so. First Pres, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which has uh, done some really historic uh, and good thinking in this way. First Pres, Jackson, First Pres Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, Independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis, First Pres Augusta. Um, but as we noted in the report, um, uh, not enough, perhaps, uh, congregations have actually um, stepped back and looked at their past. Um, probably the sentence that drew the most attention in the report was the one, it is hard to imagine being a church in the American South, for example, from 1973 on without having some racially motivated sin of which to acknowledge, confess, and repent. Um, that was not meant to single out Southerners uh, as one who goes back to the southwest corner of Virginia to 1750. Uh, that certainly wasn't um, simply a singling out. That was a historical observation. Um, those of you who know a little bit about the history of the South Force busing begins in 1971 through 1974. Many of our white flight academies begin in that same period. I mean, it's, this is part of the, the history in which we live, move, and have our being. You notice that the report doesn't have a history section, uh, in part because we've, we've already kind of done that kind of work and tried to point people to um, a resource on that, that line. 
but we did want congregations especially um, to think well uh, about their past to consider whether there were in fact things that needed to be dealt with um, to recognize that we are that that are either implicitly or explicitly we have uh, we and our fathers have sinned and failed in these areas but that wasn't meant to simply let the rest of the country off the hook um, it was for example you know like the great presbyterian word ordinarily for example uh, was there to be as an example uh, and so um, trying to read that with charity would would probably help us there um, we move then to specific uh, suggestions uh, and while we could not be exhaustive um, i think the committee did its some of its best work in those suggestions um, particularly for congregations there's a there there are a number of things which we have seen in our own churches that if 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 you were to begin taking these steps um, you would begin to, to develop relationships uh, that lead to reconciliation and might actually even lead to relocation, the three R's that John Perkins uh, so well helped us with uh, many years ago. Um, there were also specific suggestions for presbyteries on how they might be able to foster racial reconciliation for institutions, academic institutions, some curricular development and other things um, in terms of not just separate programs, but even within the main MDiv program, how to diversify readings um, to have other uh, voices, such as a Francis Grimke, uh, or as our moderator said last night, Matthew Anderson, uh, which uh, brought me tears as a Philly boy uh, to hear <laughs> Matthew Anderson invoked once again. Um, but to, to bring those kinds of readings into the curriculum uh, would would help other voices be heard uh, as we develop uh, pastoral leaders. And then finally, for agencies, um, we had some suggestions as well. But I would like to just simply focus you on the final paragraph uh, as kind of the summary of the whole. Um, the central to moving forward on this issue is intentionality. You will get nowhere if you are not intentional. Um, if we are not intentional as a denomination on the nominations committee uh, to diversify our agencies and boards, if we are not intentional in our presbyteries in developing um, uh, minority leadership, if we are not intentional in our congregations in building relationships uh, with uh, historic African American or Korean American uh, churches in our in our community, hmm. if we're if we're not intentional, then nothing will happen. It's in, so in, if you could read anything in this report, I, I think our the for the committee our our single word to our our brothers and sisters, hmm. our, our fathers and brothers here is if we could be intentional towards moving to one body, one spirit, and live out of the reality of what Christ has already created for us in and by the cross, um, that would, I think, give real change so that five years from now, when there's another study, we would see progress because we've been intentional along the way. I'm gonna to try to do with some of the questions. Some of the questions that you're texting, and I think we've already dealt with some of them, even in some of the comments. Um, I, you know, as you're thinking about your community, as you're thinking of if you are a church that's situated, say, in a community uh, that has various ethnic minority groups there, you have a wonderful opportunity uh, to be true to the Great Commission 
by understanding who they're there. I would encourage you to continue. First Corinthians 9 is a huge passage when I think about cross-cultural ministry. And I would encourage all of us, if we're thinking about these things, to do some exegetical work there. Start, start looking the word of God and start asking yourself, how can we apply this? In that wonderful passage, Paul talks about being all things to all people that he might win some. And he talks about doing it all for the sake of the gospel. And, and, and it doesn't mean you stop. He didn't stop being a Jew when he did this. He, he, he acknowledged his own ethnic identity. You see that in Philippians and, and Romans and other places where he, he certainly was a, was a man who was proud of his ethnic identity, never stopped being a Jew. He, but at the same time, I believe Paul saw the Imago Dei in the people he was trying to reach. He did, he was a good missionary. And what he did was learn the people groups to whom he was ministering to. Uh, Amars Hill, Paul knows the Athenian prof, uh, uh, poets and he, he knows their language. He knows he understands them and he is interacting um, uh, with their material. Uh, do you know the people groups in your community? Do you know who they are? Have you made the false assumption that because maybe they all speak the same language that they're all the same? <coughs> Puerto Ricans are not the same as Cubans. And vice versa, African Americans, not the same as Africans. I mean, do, are you, do, will you do the good missionary work? Because we do not send missionaries to the field. MTW's here, I know you're out there somewhere. We don't send missionaries to the field unless they know the language, the culture, have a healthy respect for the people, a love of the people they're going to. Then we, that's when we send them to the field when they've, when they've really understood these things. The problem is, brothers and sisters, we don't do it in our own churches, in our own communities. We go in there and we assume everybody's the same, or we expect them just to come into our doors because we're preaching the reformed gospel. How's that working for you? <laughs> it didn't work for me, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> no, we had to. I would encourage you to really start getting to know the people groups in your community. Who are they? And, and someone has asked this question, Randy Neighbors, I don't know if, know if he's here, but he told me once that uh, uh, churches want to know, how can we reach these dear people without changing? You can't. Just, just, just right now, I'm going to tell you right now, you can't. Because you haven't done what Paul did. You haven't followed the scriptures. You haven't done and said, hey, to the, to the Puerto Rican, I became Puerto Rican. Doesn't mean you stop being who you are, but you recognize the image of God and you begin to engage our Puerto Rican brothers based upon who they are. And you begin to celebrate the image of God in them. Fallen, yes. Fallen, yes. Just like, just like white community, white ethnic group in America is fallen. Every ethnic group is fallen, but you recognize the image is still there. And you can celebrate and embrace aspects of that image. And you, that's how you get people, that's how you reach people and make them a part of your church. And so your church doesn't just become a church that has a group of people who show up and is ethnically white, but a church that really embraces the image of God and the people who come and the recreated image of Christ in them, welcome them into your body. And yes, my brothers and sisters, you will change. And that's a good thing. Can we take some questions, guys? You, you got some of them. Jump in, anybody. That's fine. You got a bunch of them up here, so we're trying to sift through them. That's, I'm not calling my wife. I'm, I'm, I'm texting. <laughs> I'm reading your questions. That's a, honey, I wasn't, I wasn't texting you. <laughs>
This podcast is brought to you by Covenant College, the college of the Presbyterian Church in America, which prepares young Christians to live and work as faithful followers of Christ. We are a liberal arts college located on top of beautiful Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where we explore and express the preeminence of Jesus Christ in all things. Our students grow spiritually, dive deep in their academic areas, and prepare for a wide variety of professional paths. Life on Lookout Mountain and in Chattanooga is always exciting, with abundant natural areas for outdoor enthusiasts to explore, a vibrant art scene, and a flourishing entrepreneurial community in Chattanooga, there is something for everyone. Learn more about everything Covenant at covenant.edu. There's one question that says, how do we encourage those in our denomination who are tired of hearing about reconciliation? And uh, I would ask a follow-up question like Jesus would. Are you tired of hearing about how he reconciles you to God? Mm. Because if you grow tired of that, then of course you can be tired of racial reconciliation. And so the more you realize that you've been reconciled by our Savior while you were God's enemy, then that should free you and to push you out to engage in issues of reconciliation. And so it always goes back to your issue with Jesus. Do you really appreciate what he has done for you at the cross? And if you really appreciate that, then that should free you to love people who are different than you. Jumping as you see fit, brothers. Um, I'll just kind of jump in on a couple of questions. Um, one, as a member of the uh, khaki corps and the uh, bow tie battalion, <laughs> Um, as a Southerner who went to seminary and studied this denomination, who came to faith in high school and came into RUF and was interested in studying, was there any, were there any Southern Presbyterian churches in the 19th century who were anti-slavery? That was something I was interested in. And I just want to recommend the PCA Historical Center and Archives. I came across one church in the South that was anti-slavery, and it was a Reformed Covenantal church in Rocky Creek, South Carolina. And um, it, they were, it was men who studied under Alexander McLeod. And Alexander McLeod wrote a wonderful piece called, it was entitled, it was an 18th century document called Negro Slavery Unjustifiable, which was probably one of the greatest anti-slavery documents rooted in God's word. And, uh, and these men who were anti-slavery in South Carolina in 1802 and 1803 were cast out of the state. And, uh, and, and so when you're studying this history and, and the continuity of this history as we move into the 1850s and into the, the late 19th century, uh, it's great, it's deeply painful and hard. And um, I would just say, for those of you wrestling with it, to study African-American history and culture. And it was only when I began to pick up the history of our brothers and sisters and appreciate the, the suffering and um, the incredible hardship and the oppression of what our brothers and sisters went through and then how Christians really failed to uh, step into that in the early 20th century and even into the civil rights movement. Um, it it, it, it created in me a posture of repentance. 
and um, a posture of God forgive our church and forgive us. And I think an open kind of examination of history can help us in some of these things. So I just want to commend to you um, some of those studies. So several of the questions that we've received um, um, kind of get at what does it look like when you've arrived? Um, so like uh, one particular question, could you paint us a picture of what a racially reconciled PCA would look like or how do you know what are what are benchmarks for success? Um, so how does that work for your sanctification? Right, because really at the end of the day, this is a sanctification issue. Um, and so we're always going to be on this journey. Uh, we're going to get home someday, uh, but that's that's when Jesus comes. Uh, and so so it's it's not I think as we think about what does a racially reconciled PCA look like? What are benchmarks? We, we can't give you those, but we can point you to the journey, which is the journey of intentionality, um, the, the journey of, as John Perkins, again, of, of relationship, reconciliation, relocation. Um, I, I think if we can go on that journey together, um, we'll look 10 years from, from now, Lord willing, in 2028, and we'll look back on 2018 and say, my, my, as Doc likes to say, my, my, <laughs> my, my, how far we've come. Um, so I, I think that's one of those things. I, th I think particularly for an upper middle class white person like myself, I would like to have those benchmarks. Mm -hmm. You know, I would like to check the box and say, I got there. But that's, that's not what this is. This is dying to ourselves and coming to life again by the spirit as we lean into loving one another uh, across racial and economic lines as brothers and sisters in Christ. One question says, does the committee oppose mono-ethnic churches? Is it okay to plant them or retain them? And I would tell you, I, I, if you are a monocultural church, my question would be to you, why? Why is that? I think you have to answer that question. If you're in a community that's all white, well, we're not going to bust people in to integrate you, right? I mean, I mean, I guess it would be nice. I mean, but it would be wouldn't work for you. I understand that. So the answer, so no, so no, of course not. The church, if we're going to, if we're trying to be true to the Great Commission and make disciples of all the ethnic, then the church probably should begin to look a little bit like its community and reflect that in some way. Now, quick, quick biblical example, uh, and, and you, have, you have two churches that are highlighted in the book of Acts, Jerusalem church and the Antiochian church, correct? Remember, are you with me? The Jerusalem church, notice, it was all Jew. I mean, they were all Jews in the Jerusalem church. That kind of makes sense. They planted the church, and it was all Jew. That's not wrong. That was the community. Where did they go wrong? You know where I'm going. They failed to sin to the other ethnic. They failed to sin what Jesus told them they would, they should be when the Spirit came upon them, that they should be sending to all, to, 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 to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. What happened was they had a holy huddle, had a holy Jewish huddle. You know, they all ate kosher and enjoyed their signs of themselves around Jesus. I think sometimes that's what happens to us 
in any ethnic group in this country. It happens where we enjoy one another so much, we end up becoming this holy. I would encourage mono-ethnic churches in a mono-ethnic community to sin. Can you partner and get involved? Can you take that seriously and partner with churches outside of your area and, and that don't look like you? Can you begin to partner and, and share resources and, and, and encouragement uh, in that way? Plant churches, maybe, in those other parts of your area that don't look like you. Uh, may I? I'd like to. Sure. Yes, I, I think that um, though some churches might be mono-ethnic because the community reflects that, I think all churches should be cross-cultural. Uh, I don't care what the makeup of your church is. It is important that we begin to appreciate and enjoy the worship of God in different cultural modes, uh, not just to tolerate them. Because when we do that, it gives us a greater sense of how big God really is, if, if for no other reason than to really understand God better. So uh, all churches, I do believe, I don't care what their makeup, should seek to experience God in different uh, cultural uh, modes. Uh, you know, and, and of course, we don't want to do that just to attract. We don't want to say, we, we, we don't want to sing songs in Spanish just to attract Latinos. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, we want to recognize that God speaks Spanish, too. <laughs> that God speaks uh, Swahili or whatever. So, so, uh, so it, it gives it gives us a, it gives you a sense of, of of how great God is when you begin to see uh, how God is worshipped in the other uh, traditions, other cultural, uh, biblical cultural uh, modes. So, that's my encouragement to the church. All churches should be cross cultural in the in the good sense of the word. I think when you look at um, what I love about history is, is that if we're honest about it, it shows us how much we really need Jesus. And when you look at the history of our denomination, history of our country, it, we look back and say, man, if it wasn't for Jesus, where would we, have, where would we be? Because if we look back at our history, we can pat ourselves on the back then you really didn't need Jesus. And also looking back at history also means we tell the truth, that the issues of reconciliation is not just a black and white thing. We also got to consider the Native Americans too and the injustices that they encountered. So it's much larger just than our black and white thing. The Native Americans as well are included in this conversation too. And they, their voice needs to be heard. Their story needs to be told. And there's a lot of reconciliation that needs to take place with our brothers and sisters that are Native American as well. When you think about our church relations, one of the things that the question is asked, but how do we really bring about racial reconciliation at my church? Uh, we want to do it, but how do we go really go about doing it? And uh, one of the things that we try to do is is uh, realize that none of us are truly experts at this. Hmm. We don't really know exactly how to, other than having the Bible as our guide. 
One of the things that has helped us to just participate in this, in this activity at First Press in Augusta is simply to say, let's start with repentance. And my dear brothers and sisters, we have plenty to repent of. And when we go to our brothers and sisters of, uh, of another race uh, at another location, that's where we start in Augusta. We want to repent of the things that uh, we should have been doing all along, but we're not doing, and we hurt you, and we uh, cripple uh, our opportunity to minister to you. Show us how we can use those same things to bless you with now. And then after we go to repentance, starting with repentance, we want to know how can we be a part of your work? Not, not, not so much how you can help us, but uh, how we can bless you, but how can we come alongside of you and do the things that you have your goals on, actually make your goals our goals, in other words. And uh, so what has happened in Augusta is that we have somewhere between a dozen and two dozen uh, outreaches uh, for racial reconciliation that ministers to all of the various, well, not all, four or five areas, education, health care, civic responsibilities, and Christian ministries uh, direct, including things like uh, uh, downtown ballet for children, uh, uh, health care with a sliding scale for poor people, uh, first rate of private schools for, for inner city children and others. And we first of all confess that we do not have any experts there that really know what we're doing. We just go out and try to confess the sins that we've committed. And when you look at the history of First Press, if you know the history of First Press, and many of you do know, you know we got so much to repent of. And it's amazing that God would even start using a church like us, if you think about it, uh, to bring about repentance. And things have changed uh, unbelievable there just because we just make, and my, so my, work, my thoughts to you would be just get out there and make an effort and, uh, and, and, and work, get to know people. This will never, we can have committees all day long and preach until the sun goes down. We got to know one another. Until we get a chance to know that suspicion will always be there. Uh, we will always be wondering about, is this person for real? Can we trust him? But once you know somebody, and, and you know, the, the one thing I would say, Whatever happened to us seeking out the Holy Spirit to do this thing? Whatever happened, you know, we seek the Holy Spirit to do other stuff. Why don't we seek the Holy Spirit to say, Holy Spirit, help us to love our neighbors. Help us, Holy Spirit. Actually pray for it. Seek it out. And, and, and we, we do that with other sins, but when it comes to this one, we just don't. And we should.
And boy, what a change would it be. Do you remember that day when the Holy Spirit took over your life and changed you? Well, the same thing will happen when we let the Holy Spirit come in and change race reconciliation. Amen. Elder Brown, Elder Brown, how long have you been at First Pres Augusta? 30 years. When that man walked into that church with his dear wife, it was a different church. But the Holy Spirit led him there and kept him there. And that church, by God's grace, is being transformed in a very powerful way. Thank you, sir. So there was a question that came in about uh, what do you do with Korean language presbyteries? And I thought Sean would be good answering that one, but uh, <laughs> I'll take that one. You know, it's, uh, we've got the Korean language presbyteries. It's fascinating. I have a lot to say about that. I am in a Korean language presbytery. Uh, I think it's important to understand generationally, and it's tie it ties in with uh, U.S. immigration policy. Uh, Koreans, uh, immigrants from uh, South Korea at the time in the 1960s, right? Where they weren't, no one was allowed to come into the country until mid-60s, and so that's why you see this, this immigration boom. Uh, and um, it's great that people were Presbyterians. It's a couple thing, things that I wanted to share. One was uh, I got into this interesting discussion with someone about um, the problem of Korean language Presbyteries and how that's divisive for our denomination, and it doesn't, and it, it hurts us in some ways. And I and I shared uh, another way of looking at it would be in the 80s, as the denomination was relatively uh, small, we had Korean language Presbyteries say they wanted to join the PCA. The PCA grew because of the Korean, uh, the Korean language Presbyteries. We went from one to now I think we have about 10. So, uh, and now we represent 12% of the denomination. I know uh, turning in uh, Presbyterian records is really bad, but uh, aside from that, uh, I, I think it's been good for the denomination to have uh, Korean language Presbyteries. A couple other things that um, I've had some interesting discussions on, people would say, isn't this segregation? Isn't this the same form of segregation that we're fighting for to not have? And I would uh, venture to say there's a difference between segregation, which is by force, um, and laws are built uh, to ensure that you have no choice but to be with your own people versus separation, right, by choice. And you're not robbed of the choice to be able to worship in a language that you're comfortable with and still hold to the same ideals and doctrines um, with your other brothers and sisters. And so that's one way of framing it. But ultimately, I want to say things are changing. And as a Korean American born in the United States, and most of my Korean American um, fellow TEs and REs, increasingly uh, not familiar with the language and not familiar with the culture, this is an issue for second generation Korean Americans uh, and their first generation counterparts to deal with and work on. So I'd ask for prayer as we continue to work out what this looks like. We are right in the middle of it. Uh, the first generation has not died off. Yet, um, you look at, you know, the Dutch Reformed Church, you look at the German Church and other um, ethnic groups and language groups, and you see that in the history of the United States. Um, over hundreds of years, you see this emerging. Uh, the Korean Church is very young in the United States. 
in the 60s. So this is something that Korean Americans are still trying to wrestle with and figure out what is the future. Because if you're, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a second generation Korean American teaching elder, you have a choice. If you're going to stay in the Korean language presbytery, you better learn Korean. If you grew up in the church and we want to be generational and, uh, and you believe in God, uh, God is uh, multi-generational and you want to stay with your parents and worship together in covenant worship, right? Do you have to learn Korean to maintain your Christianity or do you leave? And these are sort of the debates that go on among Korean Americans. Um, so it's bigger than just what do you do with, you know, do we get rid of Korean language presbyteries? It's something that we continue to wrestle with. One final thing, um, that I want to see. When I have a mic, I just love, I could hear my voice all day. Uh, so I, I have a lot more to say, so sit back, relax. <laughs> Another comment that emerges often is, is this just bashing white people? I feel bad when I hear about racial reconciliation. I, I feel bad when we talk about this. It's a personal attack. And we have to understand systems. I think that's an important distinction to make. It's systems, not individuals. When we're talking about a dominant system that if you did nothing else but just be yourself, some people benefited from a system. I think that's what we have to recognize. The other part of it is, please, when you hear your brothers and sisters of color tell you about their racialized stories, would you please believe them? Amen. Would Sir. you please believe them? I don't think they're lying to you. <clears throat> and finally, when we talk about reconciliation, there are two sides to this. We've had a repentance, yes. There's also forgiveness. So this is to my brothers and sisters of color. If we're still harboring bitterness in our hearts, we also need to forgive. Reconciliation is both. And we only focused on the repentance. And I pray that maybe we'll have a corporate time of forgiveness as well. Thank you, sir. There were a couple of questions. Go ahead. Um, well, there were... Um, we're being inclusive. <laughs> there were a couple of questions about um, about history. Uh, how do you reconcile the sins of the forefathers and honor their heritage? That's, Moving forward, um, I'll go and you go, or you go and yeah, I go. That's kind of what I wanted to address. Yeah, you go. Uh, uh, yeah, we have forefathers in our faith who were moral failures. Let's just be straight up about it, okay? Uh, they, some of them owned slaves. Some, as a matter of fact, one great, well-known one established slavery in Georgia. Uh, some in more recent days were segregationists, uh, and, and all of that. And yet, how different is that than the moral failures we re revere in the Bible, such as David and, and so forth, you know? Moses, well, not Moses so much. I mean, he lost his temper and hit a rock. But, uh, but, but, uh, but, but, but here's the here's the point. Um, all of us in this room are moral failures, if for no other reason than in our hearts. And so we we must appreciate their contributions, their positive contributions as gifts of God's grace, 
and at the same time not reveal reveal them as heroes because Jesus is our only is the only one worthy to be our hero. And uh, so we can appreciate their their contributions, but we need to acknowledge their shortcomings. And when we do that, in a sense, it kind of magnifies God's grace, doesn't it? Because if God could use a, a piece of work like Samson, then he can use me. So I think, I think that's the way we need to honor uh, those in the past. We need to honor the contributions that God, by God's grace, that they made without uh, putting them up on a pedestal as, as heroes. And I think that's the balance that we need to strive for. You know, David is not my savior. He's just my brother. Okay. Yeah, one of the questions um, uh, that uh, came forward is how does the, uh, how would the committee suggest pastors lead the church uh, in context where the mention of racism is met with not only with skepticism, but, and then the text ends, I'm, I'm, su I'm suspecting it probably means not only skepticism, but opposition. Mm. And um, I can just, um, I'm one of the practitioners. Uh, we, um, uh, we began uh, the matter of becoming a multi-ethnic church quite a number of years ago. And what I, and, and, and our experience was, that this was not because of a change in the uh, in the neighborhood. It wasn't something that uh, that there was any pressure from outside, but it was really the result of studying scripture. I don't no need to tell you the whole story, but um, but what I would say um, is that the the leaders, especially the senior pastor, that we we need to be you need to be completely committed uh, to the biblical imperative that this isn't just something that is an optional vision but rather that it's at the heart of the gospel, that Jesus came to die not only to reconcile us to God, but also to one another, that the barriers, uh, the dividing wall of hostility is what the cross is about. And so I think that, uh, because this is hard work, it took many years uh, to get where we are uh, in our congregation, but, but it is only when you are absolutely committed and driven by the scriptures themselves, not by, uh, not by anything else, uh, that you that you begin to do the hard work. So in our context, that began by very long and very hard theological uh, sparring on the pastoral staff, and then going to the session and doing the hard work there, the the the, the spade work, going through the scriptures, um, and then um, and then and then teaching in the in the congregation. And in our case, what we sought to do, and the Lord in His kindness. Um, uh, provided an African American, uh, Kenny Foster, to come on our on our staff, we began to seek to model that. Um, and I think that as a uh, as the pastor, a senior pastor, um, there has to be a humility and a willingness to um, uh, to share leadership. Um, Kenny and I uh, basically split the preaching in our church. If he's preaching, I do the sacraments. If he's uh, if I'm preaching, he does it. And um, you know, it's a little difficult when you've been the pastor of the church for 35 years, like I have, to have the new guy come in and everybody's crowding around him after the sermon, giving him kudos. <laughs> I, I know that pastors, I know that none of you have this problem. <laughs> but but there, has, there has to be a willingness, a willingness to sacrifice. And the other thing that I would say uh, in this regard is that we need to need to get rid of this mentality that we are somehow doing other people a favor by letting them be a part of our church, but rather that we are impoverished by their absence.
The other thing that I would say is that as, as, as people begin to experience uh, worship and begin to know what it is like to be in a multi-ethnic church, it creates a desire which when they leave and go to other places, uh, they're, like, uh, they're like seeds, right? They're like the, the dandelion uh, seeds that go floating and they land in other congregations and other places. And they begin, they begin to be able to, to ask for and, 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 and plant those seeds in other, in other places. So um, um, that, that's, that's, my, that's my experience. And uh, uh, we, we, we just have a, uh, a one. Uh, and let me just mention something about the Korean uh, matter, which is a very interesting uh, situation in our church. And that is that our, our building, we, allow, we, we basically gave a Korean congregation uh, a space to worship in our in our in our building, and they did that for about ten years. They had a series, just a keeping a turnover of pastors that came and went, and and the leadership of that Korean group came to us and said, "You you all are seeking to be multi ethnic, multicultural. <laughs> Could we become a part of your church?" Right? We prayed for about two seconds and said yes. <laughs> <laughs> And it is a it is it is a marvelous experience. We we hired a part time um, a Korean first generation Korean, um, and we give him our sermon he uh, sermon notes. He translates them into Korean, and then during the service he does simultaneous translation. Our worship service has it has the order of service in English. It has it in Korean also. Um, and um, so we and, and we're struggling uh, with the, with the matter of language, uh, but. It's very interesting to see how even some of the older first-generation Koreans, when new first-generation Koreans come and say, can't we have our own, let's have our own Korean, some of those older Koreans are now saying, no, they want to be a part of this church, they're, they're experiencing this. So even with the obstacles that are involved, uh, it's been a, a wonderful, a wonderful blessing. Okay, we have a few minutes left. Uh, we can maybe take one more question. <coughs> Actually, four minutes. Is that right? Okay. Can, can, can I just say just one? I saw one question about uh, how do we how do we implement this in terms of foreign missions? And we're, I, I lost the place for the, for the question. Just let me say very quickly uh, for those of you involved in in MTW and others. And I, I've talked to a number of African American uh, missionaries, and uh, they uh, almost to a person have told me that. It, adjusting to the culture of the target country or target society they went to was much easier than adjusting to the culture of the missions agency. You got it? So uh, they felt far more trauma from, from the... So I'm just saying that we have to be aware of that, that uh, uh, there are some, some real issues that we have to work on. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just throw that out there. Just I don't want to take a lot of time. And now a message from our sponsor. Thank you, guys. Oh, I, I didn't. <laughs> you said a couple You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.